Hi there, welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode number 83. From our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine and streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you every single week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We get all literary on you this week with a couple of author conversations, part of our Sports Lit 101 segment that airs every Wednesday on downtown. Bruce Pratt, a professor at the University of Maine and a talented writer in his own right, joins us to talk with authors about their wonderful sports-related books and two of them for you on the podcast this week. One uh, from New York Times columnist Michael Powell and the other from Jeremy Beer as he looks at one of the most overlooked players in the history of baseball. Let's start with Michael Powell, longtime columnist for the New York Times and the author of a tremendous new book entitled Canyon Dreams, a basketball season on the Navajo Nation. Bruce Pratt joined us for our conversation with author Michael Powell. Michael, good to have you back with us. Hi, glad to be here. Man, oh man, I, I just, I can't say enough good things about this book. It's uh, it, it's a sports book, but it is so much more. It is so poignant, so powerful that I couldn't put it down. And uh, you, you've done a great thing here, Michael. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And uh, I very much appreciated uh, the the review last week. Uh, yeah, anyway, it, it, you know. It is gratifying. <laughs> well, and, and a wonderful story behind it. It was uh, for you and your wife, a return in many ways to the Navajo Nation. Yes, we had been there, geez, a quarter century ago, I guess dating myself. Um, she had worked there as a midwife uh, for a couple of months uh, at the the Indian Health Service, and we had lived with our then little boys um, in a trailer um, and really kind of fell in love with this gigantic land. I mean, it's the size of West Virginia or the Republic of Ireland. Um, and yeah, it's just a, you know, I mean, both kind of a magical and beautiful place. Also heartbreaking at times. I mean, they wrestle, you know, the Navajos wrestle with all of the problems of kind of rural America and of, uh, of course, that Native Americans also wrestle with, you know, across the nation. And um, anyway, fascinating time. Can you talk a little bit about res ball and the importance of basketball for the Navajo people? Sure. I mean, it's it's interesting. The, the game itself goes back on the reservation, goes back to... I don't know, probably the, the early part of the last century. Um, and it was essentially, you know, kids were taken away by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and taken to these boarding schools where the attempt was, frankly, to kind of deprogram them of their Indianness, their Native Americanness, um, and you know they, their mouths were washed out with soap if they spoke Navajo and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that they started doing was playing basketball. And it, in a in a way, it kind of speaks to their culture, which is very much a collective culture. Um, so you have five boys or girls, because girls play at 
you know, no less than boys there, um, interacting, very high rate of speed. They they run, run, run. Running is, of course, woven into Native American culture, certainly in the Southwest. I mean, distance running is is you know, sort of second only to basketball or maybe third behind rodeo too. Um, and they, so they, so this really kind of speaks to them in some way. And it is this incredibly fast and when done well, incredibly entertaining sort of basketball with, you know, sneakers squeaking and, and just kind of running and running with, Guys coming in almost like hockey shifts. You know, they won't just, you know, sub in a sixth man or a seventh man, which might get a whole line of players coming in because they're running so fast. And it's it's an awful lot of fun, frankly, to watch. Uh, uh, this is Bruce Michael. One of the, the things that was really compelling about the book, and Rich and I have both been are both high school teachers in, in, now or in the past and coaches, is the way that this is viewed by some people, the success at basketball is a way out of the reservation and at the same time can put fear in parents that it might lead to their child leaving the reservation, something that we see here with Penobscot and Passamaquoddy students. Can you go on a little bit to how that works? Because I, I really wanted to explain that last week, but I didn't really know how to do it. Yeah, no, thanks, Bruce. And I think that, that that's a great point because, I mean, I think what you see is, I mean, you have this, entity, you know, the, the Navajo Reservation, enormous, beautiful, full of, you know, sacred peaks and mesas and all this kind of meaning to people. And you have these intricate clans and families where, you know, you'll see 60, 70, 80 cousins a week. And to leave that, um, which basketball, you know, in basketball, as it is in you know, inner city culture, a lot of cultures are in, in our country, it gives it potentially gives a way out, right? Because the best players have a chance to play either at community colleges around the Southwest. They have a chance because they get exposed to um, the outside world more. They have a chance to go to University of Arizona, Arizona State, all this sort of thing. But that causes a lot of um, fear, uh, in that in that culture, uh, you know that that you will, for those leaving, that if you there's sort of a double-edged worry because on the one hand there's the worry, you know, God, can I make it out there? Can I, you know, can I compete in what is called the Bilagana world, the white, the world of the whites? Um, and if I succeed, and many do, I mean, there are very successful Navajo developers and lawyers and doctors sprinkled all through that area, can I return? You know, am I losing some part of my essential, you know, Navajo being? And for their parents and grandparents, that's also a worry. So that it's not unusual to hear kids talking about going or parents even saying, yeah, it'd be great to go. But in the end, they kind of put pressure. But, you know, wouldn't you like to go to Diné, the, the local community college? And that's a real, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a stress um, for these kids. Um, and, and, you know, and I frankly, a number of them that I that I watched ended up at the local community college. And these are bright kids and, you know. They would have been better off, I think, <laughs> speaking, I suppose, the, the parent in me, if they had gone further away. But I get that, that tension. 
We're talking with Michael Powell about his book, Canyon Dreams. The centerpiece of the book is the coach uh, of the team, uh, Raul Mendoza, just an absolutely fascinating individual. Uh, I, I have the sense that he's somebody you'll never forget. Oh, not at all. No, he's a he's a really a, a terrific and complicated human being. Um, and, you know, he was both a counselor and a coach, and the two are very much interwoven for him. I mean, his whole thing is, frankly, kind of less... I mean, he gets them to play terrific defense, and that tends to set them apart, but it's less his X's and O's and more his kind of head work that he does with the kids. And he himself is not a Navajo, but comes from a the Tono Udom tribe, which spans the Mexican-Arizona border, is enormously impoverished tribe. I mean, makes the you know, quite a bit more so than the Navajos. And he grew up in really what was like an 18th century hamlet in the desert. And, you know, kind of by almost, well, not by almost, by force of will, um, forced himself to to leave that, to get a college education. Um, he married a Navajo, and he's now spent, you know, really his adult life working in in and around the Navajo Reservation. Yeah, he's a terrific and complicated character. Complicated, I should say, you know, largely in the very best sense of that word. The players, of course, are, are walking very much in two different worlds. And I was fascinated by the religious aspect as well, that a, a number of the Navajo are Christians, but have also stayed very close to the tribal traditions, the stories, the oral traditions that go back thousands of years, and they're comfortable living in both of those worlds. Completely, and that's one of the things that as a as a white guy wandering in at first took some getting used to, because someone would describe themselves, and they were right, as a Catholic or as a Mormon or as a evangelical. At the same time, they'll go to the Native American church where they might do a peyote ceremony, and they'll also do They'll go to a medicine man, and they'll do their traditional beauty way or protection way chants. And, I mean, for instance, the, I always thought it was sort of metaphorically perfect. The Catholic Church there is built as an eight-sided hogan. The hogan <laughs> is the, the Navajo's traditional uh, structure. So, you know, the Catholics know fools. They know that, you know, if you want to get folks to come, you know, give, give them something that feels familiar to them. And they've actually adapted even the Catholic Church, some of their prayers, kind of adapt, you know, the beauty way. You walk in the way of that and Jesus, of course. I mean, so, so it's, it's a very interesting mix. And things like magic and um, the, you know, the non-material are very real there. I mean, you, you just, it's, it's a very porous membrane, and you, you kind of just get used to that, um, living there. I mean, you know, used to people, you know, seeing the world that way. One of the great beauties of, of, of this book is the way that, as the reader learns about the Navajo people, you have the Navajo people explain it for us rather than, than, than explain it yourself. How difficult was it, or was it difficult, to get some of these people to really open up so that we heard the story from them and you didn't have to report it so much? You know, that's a great question. I think a lot of it, I mean, I was lucky enough to live there about five months. I had, as I said, I'd been there a year before even that, 
for maybe a month doing some articles for the Times. And, you know, I had that experience a long time ago there. So that helped. And, but a lot of it is really just kind of trying to quiet your, your my very Western mind and just kind of giving it some time because people were largely, I mean, in fact, vastly people were friendly and, and willing to talk, but they wanted to get to know you and they wanted to, you know, you had to kind of keep showing up for a while. So, you know, after a month and a half, I kind of looked around and thought, oh, you know, I haven't, I haven't gotten what I need, but then things started to happen because you're just, you, you know, I think I teach a little bit of journalism, and I, one of the things I always say is that you know a good a good interview is a guided conversation, and and sometimes you're not even the guide, right? Sometimes you're just sitting and talking with people, and you know I would say two or three months in, um, you know I was having some yeah wonderful conversations with people, and they were they were kind of serving as my my guides. Leah, that's a remarkable way of explaining the relationship between the Navajo people and their land. Um, And I really see that. Are you able to sleep at night without dreaming of that reservation? (laughs) There are many times I dream of it, and there are are times when I look at pictures of it and kind of choke up. Because, I I mean, it is not my land, and I always, like, say that it's their land, but it it, it, it is a great honor to live there. And I remember years ago when my wife was working there as a midwife and one of the older midwives in her in that practice at the hospital who'd lived there, geez, like 30 years. Now, she was a white woman, so she was going to, when she retired, she was going to have to leave there. But I remember, you know, sitting around a table with her and, you know, she was just kind of choking up, right, talking about the kind of the depth of the relationships there. And that very much comes through. And it's not to put any kind of a gloss on it. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, unemployment is really high. Alcoholism is a a big problem there. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. But this is, and that kind of sets them apart from some, not by any means all, but from some Native tribes, you know, they largely regained their historic lands. They occupy probably... 85% 85% of their historic lands. And that does give them, you know, it it, it 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 gives a power to the story. Well, the description of the land is absolutely breathtaking. The story of the people is so powerful. The book is Canyon Dreams, a basketball season on the Navajo Nation. Love the book so much. Michael, great to talk with you. Congratulations on, on such a, a wonderful and beautiful piece of work. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it and uh, and your appreciation of it as well. So much appreciated. Michael Powell talking about his wonderful new book, Canyon Dreams, a basketball season on the Navajo Nation. When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance, we talk with Jeremy Beer about one of the great baseball players of all time that you may not have heard of. 
His name is Oscar Charleston. We'll discuss the book next on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back in 1947, Jackie Robinson, of course, broke Major League Baseball's color barrier. But there were a ton of talented baseball players who never made the leap into Major League Baseball. One of them considered by experts to be one of the greatest players of all time. But you may or may not have heard of him. It's the subject of a wonderful new book from Jeremy Beer called Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Here's our conversation with author Jeremy Beer. Terrific book, and uh, I guess we'll ask the, the big question right away. Why don't more people know about Oscar Charleston? <laughs> oh, man, it's a complicated question. Uh, it's certainly one I asked myself a lot because I was I was kicked off uh, when I heard about him for the first time and realized I had uh, not known about him uh, my whole life, uh, even though he was so great. Um, there's a few reasons. Um, the first is he... Uh, died fairly young in 1954, and that was a good 20 or 30 years before uh, historians and researchers got around to trying to tell uh, the story of the Negro Leagues and the men who played in them. And so he wasn't around to tell his own story, number one, unlike many, many other men. Uh, Secondly, uh, he didn't leave any descendants, so there was no obvious person to go to for the Oscar Charleston story. Uh, There was no intending his claim. And um, thirdly, uh, Indianapolis, his home city, didn't claim him for whatever reason. Part, that's obviously partly, at least partly, related to his race. Although Indianapolis has claimed Oscar Robertson, who grew up in a later generation in the same neighborhood. Uh, and then fourth, uh, it turns out we really don't know a lot about many Negro Leagues players, really other than Josh Gibson and Satchel Page, um, especially players who played their entire careers in the Negro Leagues. A lot of those uh, men have remained uh, in the shadows, at least with respect to historical memory. And um, Oscar just, just sort of got caught up in that dynamic. So there's uh, a lot of things going against him. And I understand that, uh, well, I guess we have Bill James to thank for bringing him to your attention. That's right. Uh, thank God for Bill James. <laughs> uh, uh, he, Bill James, of course, is not just the father of modern paper metrics or analytics, but also a great historian in his own right. And you know, he has um, about, gosh, 15 years or so ago, he published his list, the top 100 baseball players of all time. And I was looking at that list some years back, and number one was Babe Ruth, which is completely understandable. Number two was Honus Wagner. Fine. Uh, number three was Billy Mays. Okay. And number four was Oscar Charleston. And yes, and that's how I first heard about him. I was flabbergasted that 
there could possibly be anybody that I hadn't really heard of be ranked as high as the fourth greatest player of all time, which of course really makes him one of the greatest American athletes of all time, period. And um, so I was really floored. And James, though, um, was was convinced that it was a reasonable placement of Charleston. Later on, he said he was very surprised that no, nobody challenged him on that. Uh, but as I got into the book and through the research on this book, I definitely came to the conclusion that James uh, James's ranking was completely uh, legitimate. Uh, I think Charleston really was that good. I heard um, Bill James talk um, at the Sport Literature Association uh, conference keynote two years ago, <clears throat> and Oscar mm. Charleston came up. One of the things that, that, mm. that he said at the time that I thought was so poignant, and you put it, pointed out so well in the book, is that he lived at a time where the greatest of the two big eras, dead ball era players and, quote, live ball era players, saw him play. And so they, when they people from each era sort of corroborate the idea of how immensely talented this guy was. That's a really interesting point, right? You see that in the different nicknames that he's given in the black press. He goes from being the black tie cop to the black Babe Ruth uh, during the early 1920s as the live ball era really um, gets deemed and, and it's clear to everybody that we're playing a different kind of baseball now. And yeah, he could play. He was a real five-tool player, so he could play in both of those games. Uh, he wanted to lay down bumps uh, and steal bases and play small ball, he could do that for you. And if you were playing more of a power game, uh, he could certainly do that too. He had um, a tremendous amount of home runs, uh, relatively speaking, uh, compared to his peers and had a lot of power. He could clear long fences. So, yeah, that's a good point that James makes, that um, he did straddle those eras. And people from Honus Wagner, who was a, a dead ball era guy, who said that Charleston was uh, as great as any baseball player who ever lived, on to the next era, guys like Hank Greenberg and Dizzy Dean, uh, along with others that are less well-known to us now, uh, claim the same thing. So it is remarkable, his um, the span of his abilities in the game. We're talking with Jeremy Beer about his wonderful new book on Oscar Charleston, and uh, not a lot of material out there, uh, no interviews, no recordings, no video, no audio, but I understand invaluable to you was finding a scrapbook that he kept and photographs, a photo album. Yeah, I, I didn't know these things existed. <laughs> and um, they're not indexed uh, online. Uh, it's not searchable online. But fortunately, um, a man named Larry Lester, who was sort of the dean of Negro Leagues historians and researchers, uh, a man to whom anybody working in this area owes a great deal, uh, was watching a documentary in the 90s, I believe it was, some Indianapolis baseball documentary or something, and Charleston Neath, uh came on screen and mentioned having some of his personal effects. Larry got in touch with her and acquired Oscar's personal scrapbook and photo album for the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. So uh, very, very few people have ever listened to these things, uh, but uh, they are gold for somebody like me trying to get to know who Oscar was. Uh, you know, there are photos of him in Cuba where he played every winter in, in the 1920s, um, hanging out even with white friends, one of which seems to be Adolfo Duque, Adolfo Duque, who was a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds from Cuba, um, and all these clippings. And you find out a lot about what was important to him in that scrapbook. Um, for instance, he was uh, not at all ashamed of the fights he got into on the field. <laughs> he was yeah. fine with that. I think he kind of thought it was funny uh, and, and fun, both. But also the kind of his social ambitions, a lot of clippings about civil rights, and the advancement of African-Americans in various fields, music, 
um, other sports besides baseball. Um, there's a clipping from um, a journalist friend of his who is a W.E.B. Du Bois friend and correspondent. So you really get a much more complex uh, picture of this man who, it turns out, was really, really intelligent uh, and really intellectual as well, um, which aren't, you know, something you don't, something you don't always really say about ballplayers, but uh, Oscar was definitely different. You mentioned in the book, and I thought this was astonishing, that by the time he was a very young man, he'd already been to Cuba, Miami, and the Philippines, where he served uh, in the military. A lot of Negro League players who played in Cuba seemed to have great success. Can you can you make a connection to that for, for the people that are listening today? Well, um, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think the players who went down there were really, really good players. I mean, it was a very competitive league, I think. Um, if you look at the stats of Negro leaguers who played both in the Negro League and in, in Cuba, um, they're, they tend to be about the same. So I think the level of competition was just a notch below uh, the National League and the American League. Um, but it tells you how good uh, that sort of the top say, quarter or third of Negro League's players were, uh, that they uh, competed and did so well, as you point out, uh, in Cuba. Uh, they they certainly weren't overwhelmed. So I think it's it's it, it's kind of the kind of players who are coming down to Cuba to play in the winter, the kind of players that were recruited to go down to play in Cuba, because of course you had to have a team that wanted you. Um, and uh, yeah, it speaks to the the quality of play in that league. Um, also, Cuba was a, a friendly place, uh, comparatively speaking, for uh, black players. Social mores were much more relaxed in terms of where they could go and who they could socialize with, the, you know, the clubs and the restaurants, the racetracks um, were much, much more open to you. So perhaps it has a little bit of something to do with the um, more congenial social environment that they encountered down there. From your research on Oscar Charleston, is there a, a contemporary player that you might be able to compare him to, or is there nobody that had his combination or, or has his combination of skills? I, you know, for me, it's my crowd. I absolutely, I think he compares really, really well to Mike Trout in a lot of ways, uh, other than being left-handed uh, versus Trout being right-handed. But um, they both play center field. They're built in a similar way, very thick. You know, these aren't lean guys. These are these are very just athletic, but like linebackers, right? Um, you know, Austin wasn't very tall, kind of like Trout, um, but uh, had a lot of speed in the base pass, also a lot of power, plays a – if anything, he probably played a little bit better center field than Trout has a reputation for playing, um, and maybe ha- maybe has a tick less power than than Trout at the plate. Certainly, it's a different game, uh, so it's hard to say. But yeah, I think if you watch Mike Trout play today, uh, and if you imagine him being having more of the attitude of a cross between Bryce Harper and Yafiel Puig, uh, that's the sort of guy Charleston was <laughs> on the field. I, I think that's the combo I would come up with. When you look um, back on your research, of all the things that you found out about Oscar Charleston, what was the most fascinating for you? Well, the most fascinating thing was coming to know more about his role in the integration of baseball, uh, and it, which came about through his scouting for Branch Rickey. Uh, what you would read online before I started doing my research was very garbled and inconsistent. Some sources said he had recommended Jackie Robinson uh, to Rickey. Uh, that he's on the back of like a, uh, a, a bookmark issued by uh, the National Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And I found out that's not true. But what I found out was very interesting. Uh, so Charleston uh, managed a team 
in a United United States League, a new uh, black baseball league that was formed in 1945, and that Ricky managed to get uh, a franchise um, of his own in, uh, placed in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And he seemed to have brought up Charleston from Philadelphia, where he was living at the time, to manage that team, but more importantly, to scout for him. He had a problem. Uh, Ricky and the scouts couldn't scout games between black teams without drawing attention to themselves. And that was the last thing that he wanted. He wanted to get an edge on everybody else. He just wanted to make a big uh, scene about potentially signing black players before the deed was done. So Charleston did uh, what appears to have been a lot of back- background work for uh, Ricky and the Dodgers, and including for Roy Campanella. Uh, of course, he went on to have a Hall of Fame career for the Dodgers. He, uh, Campanella credits him with doing a lot of work uh, scouting him for Ricky. So that was all very interesting to read, uh, a little surprising just sort of how crucial he was to that whole effort, and then even more surprising that he never got due credit for it. I think he broke the scouting color line. I think he was the first African-American to be paid to scout for a National League or an American League team, and it's just one more way in which he's never gotten his due well, it is a fascinating story, a terrific read, and, and a great addition to our understanding of the history of baseball. The book is called Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Jeremy Beer, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Jeremy Beer and his terrific book, Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Our thanks to Jeremy and also author Michael Powell. Both those books are well worth your time and it would make great gifts, too the readers in your household this holiday season. Thanks to them for joining us. Thank you as well. We remind you as always that Downtown the Podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time.